Hi, I'm Paul Camillos. Join me and my co-host Jacinta Gavin for Series 4 of Shooting the Breeze. We cover women's hoops and women in hoops. We talk to inspiring players, amazing coaches and the legends behind the scenes and at the grassroots of the game. During this series we'll be covering the FIBA Women's World Cup where the 12 best teams of the planet are coming to Sydney. And of course, we'll be covering Australia's longest running women's professional sporting league, the WNBL, in its 43rd season. Hit that subscribe button, like and review so we can get more Hoops content to you. Can we reach those people? And can they, they go... Wow! Yeah, okay. I didn't know this is worth my time, my um, you know, my attendance, my viewership, my everything. And I think for me, that's where the opportunity with the documentary is to actually reach those people and to um, you know, incrementally, bit by bit, person by person, just try to, to see some change. In this Powerhouse episode, we talk with Adam McKay, film producer and director of Sidelined, a documentary series around the Melbourne Boomers and the fight for equality in women's basketball. But that's not all. We also have Boomers champ Carly Ernst, who returned to basketball only months after having a baby and went all the way to the championship, along with the chairman of the Melbourne Boomers, Tony Hallam. Sidelined is a long overdue and compelling show, revealing the struggles that our elite athletes face against the backdrop of a 42-year-old league that's undervalued and often undermined in the sporting landscape. And with that, the very real and profound impact, not just for the athletes and coaches, but for their loved ones and our society. We close off with a preview of the first episode with former GM of Strategic Initiatives at Indigenous Basketball Australia, Sally Phillips. The first episode, More Work To Do, screened in Melbourne this week, ahead of its TV debut on SBS this Sunday in a four-week series. Strap in, it's a big journey as we cover the terrain of the fight for equality in women's basketball. You don't need to be a fan of women's hoops to appreciate it, but you may just want to once you have. Welcome to Shooting the Breeze. Joining us today, obviously, my co-host Jacinta Gavin, and we got three guests, starting off with Carly Ernst. We've also got Tony Hallam and Adam McKay. We've got them on the show because of Sidelined, a documentary series that's coming up specifically about the fight for equality in women's basketball. And also, it gives us a really good look at the Boomers Championship year. Everybody, welcome to the show. It's great to have you all here. Thanks, great to be here, Paul. Okay, so look, let's get into it. First of all, I'll start off with you, Adam. Let's get into the the whole reason for getting the documentary up. What was the driver behind it for you and all the key people that were involved? And more importantly, how did you actually convince people to get in on it? Because sometimes people kind of go, oh, film, documentary, oh, not sure about that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, look, the short answer, Paul, is that, you know, there's just not enough noise being made in this space and, you know, there was clearly a gap. So the opportunity was there to, I guess, you know, sort of uh, spotlight stories which really deserve to be told. But now, look, I'd have had a connection with, you know, Tony and the Boomers, um, you know, loosely, but still, you know, fairly um, genuine connection 
for quite a while now and, you know, sort of post-lockdown. I started doing some more work with them in, in their academy, um, you know, make, creating videos for the academy. And, yeah, look, I, I was looking for, like, a longer-form piece. Um, you know, the world's going shorter and shorter with this content and as a video guy, like, you know, I can't really do much. I can't tell a story in 15 seconds. So I was sort of looking to... Um, you know, to do something a bit more lengthy, more towards broadcast, more storytelling, more substance. And yeah, the two worlds just sort of gradually got closer and closer together. And um, what started off as an idea of, wow, this could be a very pivotal year um, with the boomers. Um, this could be a story worth telling. Quickly, you know, I took shape and I thought I knew what I what I knew going in, but um, I knew nothing. I didn't know, have any idea of what the season was actually going to uh, throw at us. And um, yeah, here we are some 15 months later with sidelined um you know about to reach for worlds so it's it's been a ride i'm kind of curious because when you get into doing a show like this there's a whole lot of pieces that you've got to pull together and more importantly there's a lot of administrative for want of a better word work that has to go around getting people on board getting things happening it's a lot for an individual filmmaker to do how did you kind of spread that load and, and how did people come in and help you with that yeah, no, you're spot on, Paul. I mean, I think you want you want to have buy-in from everybody. You can't drag people's kicking and screaming, you know, along on a, a project like this. It's people's lives, it's people's stories, it's people's trust, and, you know, you need to make sure that, you know, they feel comfortable with the process, they feel comfortable with the end result, and they feel comfortable with you as the person who's going to be, you know, heading it up and executing it. But, no, look, I was, you know, very lucky from day one had, you know, the boomers were, were very much, um, as being the progressive club they are, were, were very much, you know, on board with this and saw the vision, you know, um, didn't need to do much selling there. And from there it was, you know, sort of going down the line of going, well, okay, you know, the, the senior playing group, the leadership group, do they see the vision? Are they comfortable? Yes, they are. Great. All right. Guy Malloy, the head coach, and that was a big one. You know, I was a little bit scared of Guy, if I'm honest, but quickly learned that he is a sweetheart he just likes to pretend he's grumpy but uh deep down he's um he's an amazing amazing guy so yeah you know i did a little bit of and i think a lot of it was just to be honest paul like practical stuff you know like how can i be in the situation without affecting it you know because I, I can't be there at the detriment to the team and and what you know they're trying to achieve but you know the first uh, i said to the team um on day one you know like i'm not gonna have a camera in my hand for the first two weeks. I'm, I'm just going to be around the team and just see how you guys operate, get to know you. You know, I think it's important that you get to know me as a person and not just a, you know, guy with a camera. And then I think that just made it easier. So by the time we did actually start filming, like I think there was a level of comfort and trust there and I was sort of just part of the furniture. So I could just go about my business, you know, without the worry that I was sort of impacting situations. And um, yeah, I think it all worked out, you know. Paul, if I could add, because Adam is, uh, I think, a remarkable person and clearly a remarkable talent in what he's done, but I don't think we would have let him into our organisation the way we did if there wasn't, he used one word, which is just trust, the trust of authenticity. So we weren't after a marketing piece. There are lots of documentaries that are done effectively by the content owner and therefore they become, with all due respect, they become an element of marketing, which is fine. That's just recognising independence versus non-independence. The second, I think, is that we needed to trust him because to be ready there with some of the stories. So an example is Carly coming back to play. He needed to know as we were going through the negotiations with Carly and 
Guy Malloy as the head coach was talking to Carly and whether that was going to happen or not so that he was actually ready to go when Carly came to first training session as opposed to, hey, here's a surprise and away we go. So, and I think he touched on, you know, there is one, I think in many of these documentaries around sporting teams, there is one person who can be made to look like a hero or can be made to look like not a hero very quickly and that's the head coach. Hmm. Because they are, ironically, in this scenario, Guy is not the centrepiece of the story. He's part of the story, but the story is about the athletes and the women who do what they do. But if Guy was not open to this and trusting enough, you wouldn't get the access and you wouldn't get the um, unfettered access. And so he was pivotal in that trust piece. And I would say when he said yes to Adam, he was about 80% there. Yeah, there was still twenty percent of him going. Geez, I, I've seen these before, and he, and I think Guy went and spoke to a couple of head coaches who'd had similar documentaries done just to understand boundaries and whatever. So, but I think back to Adam, I wouldn't underplay the. I won't say he had a strong relationship with the Boomers. We just knew him when he approached us. We had due diligence. You know, we just knew we could trust him, and that was very significant. I think. And Carly, you might want to comment on that from a an athlete perspective and, you know, trusting the storytelling. Yeah, definitely. I think like from day dot when I come in, I think Kylan was in Adam's arms straight away instantly. So I I just knew I could trust him and I think just having him around and part of the group with the camera can be like daunting to some people, but he just sort of blended in. We did our thing and he was just, you know, blended in with it all. But no, definitely we all trusted him and what he's put together is going to be pretty special. That level of trust is really important, particularly when you're dealing with any athlete because quite often your performances on court get scrutinised so much and particularly now with social media. I've noticed certainly, you know, in the years that we were involved with the Flames, the level of scrutiny that the players come under, particularly from people outside the team, is incredibly high. It's incredibly savage. And in a lot of cases, incredibly unfair. So getting that level of trust in this kind of an environment carries a lot more importance in projects like this, I think. Yeah, no, you're right, Paul. It's, uh, I think it's a big responsibility as well. And, you know, that's something that I shouldered. I knew from day one. Um, and I was prepared to, to do everything I could to make sure that I lived up to that and just no stone unturned in capturing and then no stone unturned in putting it together. But yeah, I mean, you know, you're absolutely right. We're not here to make anyone look bad, but we're not also here to make anyone look good. We just want authenticity. And I think that's what people are craving in 2022, you know, like they can just smell a mile away, you know, things that are too, you know, curated or, you know, it just as Tony said, marketing pieces. So, um, but yeah, I mean, look, you know, I'm capturing people doing amazing things, but I'm also capturing them when they're at their most vulnerable and times where maybe they would prefer not to be, you know, filmed as well. All that comes back with me goes on a hard drive and it's like, well, what, what happens to that now? You know? So yeah, I think trying to empathize and, um, understand it from the other side as well. And, you know, treating it with that responsibility and also realizing it's not about me. You know, it's about the story and it's about the athletes and just trying to fit in and judge the vibe and um, not make it about me, but just do whatever it, whatever it took. Yeah, no, it, it all worked out. I didn't get thrown out of any training sessions. I didn't get thrown out of any meetings. 
<laughs> I was actually disappointed. I think one would look great on camera, but nothing. So, um, yeah, I think Guy Malloy's fears were allayed <laughs> fairly quickly. Yeah. No, we had, we had fun with it, you know. It wasn't always fun, but we had fun with it. And so uh, what were some of the biggest surprises? You said, Adam, you had a purpose going into making the documentary, but you also have already hinted that there was some surprising outcomes. So what were the most surprising things for you? Yeah, well, look, I mean, I've been around basketball for, you know, quite a while. I'm no, no rookie to it. So going in, I thought I knew, you know, like the themes we wanted to talk about, you know, were, I mean, okay, cool, you're going for a championship. Like I get that. That's That's amazing. But you know, we wanted to really look at things around, you know, gender, you know, gaps and pay disparities. And, you know, like we actually wanted to talk about race and identity even before we had an incident which happened, which really brought that into focus, unfortunately, in a very unfortunate light. And also sacrifice. We actually talked about, you know, motherhood and, you know, the best years of your playing career also coinciding with possibly the time in your life as a woman, you want to um, start a family. I remember the meeting we had um, was like, oh, there's no mothers on the team. We'll find a way to touch on that. And then the universe sent us Carly Ernst and, uh, and Kylan and Josh. So, um, yeah, look, surprises. But I think for me, just, and it was really just like the scale of a level, the effort that the players put in, you know, they're doing, you know, the same as the men. Like it's just their training, their weights, their um, recovery, like everything is pro-level world-class. But then that extra level and layer they have on top, of challenge that they have to overcome because, you know, they've got other work they need to do to pay the bills and um, supplement their income or, you know, this or that. So I think it was the scale of things really surprised me, even as someone going into this who sort of didn't know nothing, who knew, you know, quite a bit. And it's pretty confronting, to be honest, when you're around it every day and you see it, you know, just how much these athletes are doing with relatively how little resource they have to use. So, yeah, hopefully that comes across. I think it will come across in the documentary and people will just gain a perspective on you know, the challenges that are faced and really my level of respect and admiration for these athletes just rose exponentially. Before we roll into a particular question that I know Jacinta had, I just want to go back to a point that you raised in that, and that is the amount of effort that all the, the athletes put in, training, weights, indies all the things that go on around being a wnbl player i don't think and you know jump in and correct me if, if you think i'm wrong on this i don't think up until you know when once this, the documentary comes out i think people will see it the large number of wnbl fans i don't think they really understand how much effort really goes into the level of athleticism that we see on the floor I think, with with all due respect, I think effort undersells what we're talking about. Yeah, fair comment. Um, in all of our lives, in all people's lives, we all have a lot of effort. But there's an elite element to these athletes in their skill, in their resilience, in their athleticism, all, all different elements, whatever part of it is that gets them. Because only a very, very small number of women are capable of doing what they do. So... I think that uh, language is part of the journey we need to go on. Yeah. Um, and Paul, I don't. It's not a. It's because. Uh, and I've, I've been on this journey myself over the last six years. It's the reason you'll hear we use the word athlete, yep. not player. Yes. I personally don't like the word girl or. That's a word that get now. Interestingly, the athletes use that very freely, but I sort of go, well, that's okay. That's them. 
So I think language is because I don't think the athlete should be rewarded because they have a lot of effort. I think they should be rewarded because they are at the elite level of their chosen profession and therefore all of the things that Adam's had the privilege to observe, I don't know that people could expect. In fact, in some ways you don't want them to know all of the things that go because part of the joy of sport is the the unknown, the magic of it as to how it happens. But we certainly know that anybody who comes and watches the Boomers play, they walk away going, geez, I really didn't get how good they were at what they do. I think that's the thing to focus on is it's part of the reason that exposure and how do we change the game here? Well, we change the game with exposure, but we also change the game because people decide that they're going to talk about that and turn the stories of those elite athletes into things that people know and relate to. So, you know, I look at um, Carly Ernst, who's on this podcast, right, and to actually have the capability to return to elite level, you know, certainly quality play, best five leagues in the world within uh, 16 weeks of having a baby, that's that's just incredible. Mm. And it isn't because she's does a lot of hard work. It's It's more than that because you've got to have the talent to do it as well. You do. As you said, the resilience, but there's a mental aspect to it as well. You've got to really want it. That's the mental side of it as well, which, again, is something that often gets overlooked, particularly with women's basketball. Carly, yeah. we're a bunch of blokes talking about all this, and I'm just like, tell us, tell us, tell everybody, fill us in. Oh, gosh, where do I start? Well, yes, Tony covered. I came back 16 weeks after having my beautiful boy Kylan and I think you talk on like the mental side of it like it was it was tough but then I think I personally it's like so hard to talk about I personally was struggling mentally after having the baby and I don't think that's talked about enough like the postpartum factor you feel really isolated even though I had my family around me every day helping me it was just completely different I thought I was just going to have you know, the whole having a baby thing down, but it was tough. So I think coming back and like when boomers reached out and said, do I want to play? I jumped at that opportunity. I might not have been from the start at my peak level fitness, but I picked that up super quick. Guy just threw me into training right away. And I think that was one of the best things I did for myself because I think I got back into that mental mindset of just wanting to, you know, work out every day and just like compete and that was just me and what I loved doing so I think going back into that and you know being around the group of girls and just the environment was just so good for me my mental health but also like my mental toughness like you're talking about and I think I just can't credit like boomers enough and all the girls in the group like day one I think Adam had Kylan in his arms helping and then Tony one session had was holding while I'm training so I think it was just yeah massive family the boomers is and yeah it was just the most incredible experience and then to win a championship on top of it was just it's just crazy and I cannot wait to watch this documentary back it all feels like a blur to me because I feel like I was just so sleep deprived but I just charged on with the baby waking every two hours and then going to training the next day it's it was tough but at the end of the day I had all the girls and everyone 
around me supporting me keeping me going you know giving me tissues when I'm just off the side crying because I'm just (laughs) you know just having one of my cries like I did a lot but no it was yeah it was pretty special to be a part of and that's like huge as well so I've just just one quick point I I think it's like you know whether it's yourself with the challenges of of you know coming back so quickly um or I mean there were so many players and women on the team who had an opportunity or every reason to like complain you know like having to get into the gym at 6 a.m because they have to race off after practice to go to you know their, their other job or any number of things but you know not once did I see anybody ever be a victim use excuses complain it was just like no we've like of course we want things to get better you know that's clear and that definitely comes across but you know, like Kyla, there's too many C's in the, in the team. So Kayla, Kayla George, she called, you know, everyone warrior women, you know, and that's sort of stuck with me because I'm just like, you're damn right, they're warrior women, you know, and just really like the admiration, I think, and hopefully that translates through the documentary. I really think it, it will. You know, these are warrior women. They're not victims. They're not complaining. Yes, you know, they want things to get better, but at the end of the day, they're doing a lot with relatively, you know, not much compared to those around them. And they're just, they're crushing it at an elite, elite level. And that's just inspired me. And I just wanted to share what I, you know, experienced. So that's what the result is. You know, I imagine, like you said before, Adam, you went in with a, a, a very clear purpose and, and goal for what you got. And we just talked about some of the surprising things that have come out of it. Now that you've gone through, you know, you've gone and shot the footage. And I imagine you've obviously watched back the footage because now the series is produced and ready to go. How much of the story was shaped with the footage you had, but also um, how much of you then got to shape the story? What was kind of working in parallel? It's always a balance, isn't it, right? Like you um, you want to have a plan, you know, you want to have your themes and, you know, like your storylines, but you've also got to be open to what what can come. So, yeah, flexibility for sure. Um, but, yeah, I think, you know, definitely it's an interesting question around that that balance between just being completely objective versus editorialising. And the answer is it's somewhere in the middle, you know, like there's obviously things you want to tell, but you don't want to... I guess, put too much of your influence on it where it's becoming, you're just going too far off from from reality. So I think with authenticity as a guiding principle, but then also realising that you do have the opportunity through how you, you know, put things together to actually, you know, tell a story in the way you want to do it. But it's not easy um, and there are decisions that have to be made. But at the end of the day, you know, my, I guess, sort of guiding principle was with that authenticity was you know could I show this to the athletes and have them look at it and go yes that's our story you know you haven't just taken something and ran with it and taken you know creative license and turned it into something it's not like that's us that's who we are that's our story so that's for hope I I, I think we're in a pretty good place with it time will tell but yeah look I had a lot to work with to be honest and um, it was just about you know carving out the most you know, impactful things that would really, you know, create a connection with the audience and humanise our people. We get it. They're great basketball players, like awesome, great. Turn the TV on, watch their games, you get that. But, you know, who are they as people, you know, and really seeing them as people first before athletes, I think, you know, it just makes those decisions when you're in post-production a little bit easier. If I can add a little bit to that, and and it's, I, to me, it's the, you know, it's the allure of, uh, I suppose reality TV, it's the allure of sport that it's just, it is unscripted as much as it's scripted. And 
I think if I observe Adam back a year ago, he had a working group and they had looked at potential storylines and potential, if you like, key actors or key stories, particularly the athletes and so on. And um, and then that was really well planned. And then reality gave him some cannon fodder that just changed things. So, you know, Guy deciding or announcing, you know, uh, in the middle of pre-season that this was going to be his last season after nine years was, was something that was unscripted. It, you know, the debacle that was the, the racial discrimination issue around hair and Carly coming back, which was just something that was completely not on the radar until January. The continuing impact of COVID and the expectations of on these athletes of what they need to do. So what you see often in some of the footage is quite empty stadiums and people go, well, what is that because nobody's interested? Well, remember we're in the middle of still of coming out of lockdown in Melbourne and and then the drama of being in the hunt for four previous years and, you know, we'll, spoiler alert, we all know what happened, but the way it happened, particularly in the grand final series, you know, I think the way the coverage of the WNBL, the broadcast, I think it produces, it presents it pretty well, right? But what you'll see inside the documentary is you get to see a whole different set of vision that Adam has shot from the side of the court, effectively, during these games, in the change rooms at halftime. We all know what the ending is, but, you know, the vision from game one of the grand final series, when we're on our home court, we're ready to win, and we got spanked. Like, spanked. At one point, I think they're 28 points up on our home court within about 25 minutes of the game starting. It was just, and the impact of that and the vision of that and living that, and look, we're obviously very close to this, you know, Carly's an athlete and a member of the championship team, and you, so you're very close to it, but having watched a number of, you know, I'm a, I'm a sports documentary lover, it's, it's um, everything's different in every one of these, and we might talk a little bit about Guy. Guy's a really calm, one of the things you'll see in this, he's not a rah-rah coach. But it is fair to say that in game one of the grand final, you know, he has his moments. Not not abusive or anything like that, just I can't do anymore. And and some of that stuff just completely changes the way we thought it might have been when we were back doing, if you like, the pre planning and, and so on. And Carly, you you touched on before some of the things, the struggles that you had on the sideline, you know, coming how important it was coming back to basketball, especially in the boomers, and some of the things you're still navigating with motherhood throughout that comeback season. And then I think it's such a, a serendipitous that at the same season you've got a documentary about what's happening behind the scenes. And has it kind of dawned on you yet how important that part of the story is going to be for a lot of people, fans? and alike are going to to be saying yeah I think looking back at it now like feels like a blur because I was so sleep deprived but like with it all coming out now and everyone talking about it and you know like how Adam and Tony talk about you know how crazy it was coming back at 16 weeks like at the time I was just like oh yep I'll do it I feel good like but now it's like okay it was you know okay it was something doing that but I think the footage, like, and I haven't seen it all yet. I'm very excited. The behind the scenes of it all and it'll just show other, you know, other mothers, other athletes that it can be done. And I think that's what's so special about it. And it's now it's 2022, all the clubs are getting around it. Like 
women can have a baby and come back to sport or any job they want to do. Why can't they? So, and I think that's what's so great is you're going to see in all the footage, all the support and the actual help I had behind me. Like I couldn't have done it on my own. You know, like I was training, someone was looking after Kyle. And so I think that's what's going to highlight in it. And everyone's going to see behind the scenes of just how special like the boomers were in helping us and, you know, and helping me get through that first, you know, six, seven months of motherhood. Cause it is really hard. Motherhood's hard. Like he's one tomorrow and every day is still different. Like it's never going to be the same. Every day is different. And you just take, and that's what I've really learned as well. You just take each day as it comes and it's, it's just really so special. And to look back now to have this footage and I'll be able to show him like how special is that? Like coming in, I would never have thought something like that would be happening. So I'll be able to, you know, sit when he's a bit older and watch it. It's just, honestly, it's one of the most special things and I'm so excited. Now, one of the topics I want to go back to that Adam mentioned and Tony as well, in relation to the issues with the players and the hair and, and, and Tony, you said it was handled I think you said not well. And to be blunt, it was handled very, very badly. We had Kayla on the show a while back, and she was very, very blunt about her opinion on that and and the incident and what happened. I'm curious, Carly, from your perspective, seeing what took place and how it, it affected the team and obviously brought the team together, how did you see that? So I wasn't around when it actually happened. Mm. And let's just say I was sort of off the internet, fresh newborn, but coming into the group and then being told, I remember Guy roughly mentioning it to me and what had happened and how upset the girls were. And you'd expect them to be upset. Like, why are they any why are they any different? Why should they have to, you know, change their hair for that? And I think the way that the club handled it and the way that the girls got around each other and me coming into that, it was it's just special and you're going to see that in the footage as well. It's just so special how everyone got around them and stuck together and just put their foot down and said that that's not okay. Like we're going to stand by you, we're going to stand by your feelings and, you know, because it's just, yeah, I just think it's ridiculous and I'm just so, I was so proud to come into that bunch of girls because they were just so tight and just put their foot down. So, yeah, super proud of the group and was, yeah. I mean, let's add to it as well as there's a couple other lenses to put on this. So let's just play hypothetical and let's say that this happened in uh, the NRL, right, and that a, an Islander was told, a male player of high profile, remember you're talking two very high profile players, um, were told to uh, tie their hair or to have their hair in a certain way by the NRL. It would be on the back page of every paper. It would be on the news. It would be, it just would be, right, because it's wrong. I mean, it, and um, there was good coverage of the issue, but it was mainly driven by Tiffany and her courage to share her story and her feelings on social media, which then generated. And I think that says a lot around just the way the industry works. So that's one lens to look at it. Another lens to look at it is that um, we, we've learned it helped us as an organisation, right? Because we didn't handle it perfectly. It, it, how does it get to that point? 
what are the learnings we have? What What's the systems we have in place? How do we... Now, we're very proud of how we handled it. And I think the best outcome of that, apart from the outcomes of the season, is that Tiffany's coming back. Now, and I would say as an organisation, I am extremely proud of that. The fact that she went through what she went through. Remember, she'd only been in the country less than three weeks. Yeah. And we worked our way through that and then she's come back. And she's a player who could go and play. I mean, Kelly, you could comment on this better than I could, but she could play around the world. She wants yeah. to. And then the third lens to put on it is how does the administrative system within basketball within Australia allow a rule to stay in place when it's not a rule? It's been removed elsewhere in the world. So we're very proud of the fact that there's no girl or boy in Australian basketball that anybody has to think about applying that rule to them anymore. And as a legacy piece, that was, you know, as, as hurtful as it, it was and still is for um, the people it directly affected, that's a legacy piece. You know, there's a change. And that would never have come, uh, sorry, there is possibility that that would not have come to light and that some young girl or young boy or even an adult boy or a man or woman was playing midweek basketball and they were going to be told to do something which is just inconsistent with the country we live in. I absolutely agree with you on that. One of the things that this also highlighted was I know that certainly on social media, for what it's worth, there was a backlash to the actions that, so, that the players took. And it look, it was unfair, it was wrong, but from the team's perspective, how did you guys see that kind of feedback, backlash, whatever you want to call it? Well, it's, it, Carly, you're, you're probably best place to, to answer that. But again, you weren't there when that was initiated. And so it's, it's perhaps a, uh, if I can maybe give an observation from an organisation perspective, Paul, and then this uh, symbol divides, it divides opinion across the world, taking the knee. So everybody has their own personal view. But that wasn't an issue within our organisation because one of the things that we believe in and it was a good example and a good learning for us was we want people to be themselves bring their best of themselves who they are to their workplace as any organization is trying to do in the world we live in so within our organization there are different individual views potentially as to whether that symbol is appropriate or not but i would say that aside everyone as an organization came together to say this is about expressing that what was done is not good enough, that Basketball Australia needs to do better, and we're going to remind them of that, not just once off, but right through the season. So the, the issue on social media of some people not like, I think it's partly because they don't understand. And I, one of the things that lack of media coverage does is it becomes quite simplistic as to how people see things. So there is about 20 minutes devoted to this topic in episode one, and it will divide people again, but it gives more context and therefore it can become educational. And I'm happy to have the debate with anybody about why we support what was done. But again, it, it divides and there are people who will use that you know, for a whole range of reasons that, that I'm certainly not going to give air to. But I think we learnt as an organisation, I think... We were very proud to support our people because that's who they, they're, they're our employees, they're our people. And then I think it had an impact of um, people started to ask questions because they did it consistently. It wasn't a once-off. It was like, how come they're still doing that? Like, what is that? What happened? And 
then you can talk a little bit more about it. And I hope the Adam, I think, has done an incredible job with these four episodes telling stories, and I think that's a really a really important one to to unveil. Yeah, when we had Kayla on uh, an episode, as Paul mentioned, she did say that your team and the club were committing to taking a knee every single game this season. And first of all, that was one of the best parts for me as a fan and as a supporter of, you know, progressive issues, especially for people of colour, that they were, you were committed. It wasn't just like a, a tokenistic, oh, we'll just do it, you know, and then we've, made, we've set our piece. It was a commitment. And it wasn't just a commitment to the cause, but it was a strong commitment to their teammates as well. So that read to me as a pretty, pretty strong catalyst at the start of the season for some serious team bonding that would transfer off the court, on the court. And so I, yeah, definitely credit you for that commitment for every game. And as you were saying as well, Tony, it was it will be such a good conversation starter. It was then, and I feel like it will now that once it's on the documentary, because even in the preview, Adam has put snippets of the team every single game taking the knee together, taking mm-hmm. the knee together. And while you referenced it to as dividing people, but I think unless we kind of bring these issues to the forefront, it's never going to be talked about. And yep. the fact that the boomers took the knee every game, I feel like I hate to say it, but from mainstream media or any kind of media, that point of the boomers' journey was censored. Yeah, I, I think. Well, first of all, the unfortunately, the on the coverage, the national anthem is not shown, and so yeah, that yeah, yeah so that kind of <laughs> didn't yep. work out. But, but, yeah. but it's a good example of where that's just not talked about or not on the mainstream broadcast. But I'll share an inside story, which Adam's not familiar with and, and Carly isn't either, so bear with me. But we have a leadership group within the club, which is uh, which was for the season was myself, Kayla, Tess, Guy and Ezzy, and, uh, and until she went to Basketball Australia, Chrissy Collier. And we, once we got in season, we, we wouldn't meet very often, but we probably met four to six weeks and just got together and said, okay, what's going well? What's What do we need to work on? And and we, some of the session was around the ability to have honest conversations. And so I do recall in, I think it was towards the end of January, and the question we asked ourselves was, you know, what are we most proud of and what, what hasn't gone well? And to the five people who were there at the time, all five of us were, were most proud of that. And Adam, from your perspective, you know, you were there from the start, you saw the incident happen and, you know, Carly coming in later. But as a fly on the wall in that situation, could you see this kind of catalyst that had happened in the team around this issue? Yeah, yeah. Well, look, I think, you know, the team bonded and gelled and and the dynamic of the team came together fairly quickly in my eyes as someone who was there from pre-season and sort of started to see all these, you know, little orbiting planets start to, you know, find a little rhythm with each other. Um, And I, I think... Rather than being an event which bonded the team together, I think the stance and the support that the players and the athletes took together was really, I guess, um, referencing the fact that they were already incredibly tight and valued each other. And, you know, there's just like such a values alignment across the board. You know, I don't think, and again, you know, I only saw what I saw. I think it was across, you know, 95% of it, but I'm sure there were sort of you know, other meetings as well. But what I saw, there was never a vote taken or a consensus, hey, do we want to um, take the knee? Also, we need to mention it as well. If Basketball Australia and the WNBL and the referees went to enforce this in that first game of the season, then the team wouldn't have played. They would have not played. 
And to a person that was a consensus across the whole playing group, you know, again, without giving away too much, they lost that first game. No one cared. They cared because they lost the game. But at the end of the day, what stuck with them was not a loss to the Bendigo spirit in round one of the WNBL with respect to Bendigo. It was the fact that they stood up for what they believed in and supported their people. That's huge. If anything that comes out of this, it says an enormous amount about the Boomers organisation. It says that it's an organisation that's willing to stand solid, even in the face of what was criticism from some sectors, ignorance. And when I say ignorance, I mean they just didn't understand, what people didn't understand why. And the fact that for you, Carly, you've come into the team after the events happened, but it obviously was something that resonated with you when you came into the team as well. And to me, looking at it from the outside, I think it says volumes about the organisation and the people within the organisation that you got that outcome and the team stuck to it throughout the whole season. Yeah, definitely. Like I said, coming in, it's a sisterhood and I knew those girls had each other's backs. And with that, I was 100% in it as well. So I was like proud of everyone that they stuck to it the whole season, took the knee, they were proud of what they were standing for and they were going to show and it wasn't just going to be a one-time thing. It was going to be talked about throughout the whole season and it's just it's just going to get people talking more about it once it comes out, which is a good thing because it's going to educate people. Now, the other side to the equation of the documentary is about equality in basketball and I also like to use the word equivalence in relation to women's basketball. And when I say equivalence, I mean you look at the NBL and if you look at the number of minutes of coverage and the number of column inches that are written about the sport in comparison to the WNBL, there is no equivalence. To me, that's one of the key themes that the documentary brings out and is really critical now, especially at this point after 42 years of the WNBL, we need to have these conversations about this subject a lot more regularly. Carly, first of all, from your perspective, how do you see the support that the WNBL gets from the wider media in comparison to the NBL? And I'm not, I'm not trying to, to play one off against the other. It's more about how does it feel to you as a player, as an athlete, as someone who's been in the WNBL for as long as you have, to see that disparity? Yeah, it's like it's tough because like it's our livelihood as much as it is the men's livelihood and we give it our all just like they do. But the coverage and the media and stuff, it's always more on them and it always has been. So I guess it's just it's disappointing because we work our butts off day in, day out and why aren't we showed more? That's what I just don't understand. Like when people actually come out to games or watch it, they'll go, wow, that was actually entertaining. These women can play. And that's the thing. And I think you get your trolls and your stuff like, oh, what women in sport and this and that, and it's not as good. Have they actually sat down or actually come to a game before? And I'm going to say, no, they haven't. And eh, it's, it sucks because we just we give it our all and we play so hard and when people actually do come, they do enjoy it and that's what I hate. 
about it. It's like, we just need you to get to a game and then you're going to love it. Yeah. And it just, it definitely does. It just needs to get out there more, more coverage in the media and just, yeah, people just need to seriously just come and watch us because it will stop them talking and saying that we shouldn't have coverage because we should. And it just frustrates me so much. Bloody incredible, Carly, and you deserve more. Sorry, yeah. I don't know. It just, I get so mad. <laughs> like, I don't know how to say it without nah. sounding too rude, but like, just come and watch us seriously i would say as well like you know i I think for wmbl fans for fans of women's sport like they're going to watch the documentary i think they're going to get a lot out of it and i really look forward to their feedback but i think for me like the opportunity here is to get the people like you're not going to reach those people in the corners of the internet who just want to be on their behind their keyboards trolling like oh okay whatever like we're not going to drag you kicking and screaming to our side that's fine but the people who may not be aware or just, you know, haven't really been exposed to everything that we're privileged to see, can we reach those people? And can they they go, wow, yeah, okay, I didn't know. This is worth my time, my, um, you know, my attendance, my viewership, my everything. And I think for me that's where the opportunity with the documentary is to actually reach those people and to, um, you know, incrementally, bit by bit, person by person, just try to, to see some change. And I, I would say like with, say, in episode three and four, the last two episodes of the series, that grand final series, you could bundle that up and package it and give it to anybody who's a fan of of sport, even not sport as well, and just say, watch this and get back to me. And, I mean... Just that game to in Perth, I don't want to give too much away, but you could send that out into space for aliens to discover as an example of an amazing sporting event and they would be like, this is great, why don't we have this, let's go and uh, check it out. So, yeah, I'm, I'm very bullish on that. I think, you know, it's a great product. It's um, amazing people who are putting it together on the court and off the court and, you know, if we reach some more people and, and have them come across and, and get behind it, support it and help us make noise in this area, then... You know, that's got to mean something, right? I think because you've taken the risk as well of, you know, showing people, like letting people in, you're letting people into behind the scenes, into people's vulnerabilities, into their struggles. It's going to be very meaningful for fans and for ex-players, ex-coaches, but also a really strong drawing point for those people who might not even be sports fans or basketball fans at all because of that authenticity and had you gone down a a marketing route like Tony touched on before, I don't think your story or the true purpose and the meaningfulness of the story would have translated at all. I say yeah. that like I've watched it. <laughs> no, I think you're, I watched spot, it yet. You know, you're spot on, you're spot on. I mean, people will just call BS on that. You know, we can smell that a mile off. So I think if you're going to be authentic, you can't be half in on that. You've got to be full in with authenticity. And as I said, you know, like, not here to make anyone look good or look bad, but just here to tell the stories. And there are challenging moments there that, yeah, some of the athletes will probably look at and go, mm, okay, but as a whole, you know, like that's part of it. You know, it's not all it's not all smooth sailing. Things happen. To be honest, that's the draw of it because it's relatable. I mean, who wakes up in the morning and just has like the best day ever? Well, everyone on social media, if you're to believe it, but, you know, it's not <laughs> our real lives, you know. It's like we we struggle. We go through stuff and hearing people like, say, Carly talk about, you know, struggling, like it, it's important for people to to see that, to hear about it and be like, oh, thank God it's not just me, you know, because that, that starts them changing their mindset and thinking about things differently. So, yeah, authenticity over everything, 
storytelling over everything and basketball sport in general is a great vehicle to to tell stories so um i can't wait can we just come back to your observation around nbl versus wmbl because i just wouldn't mind talking to that if you don't mind yeah sure and i thought carly's you know carly was I think giving you a, a great perspective on how it makes an athlete feel. Mm-hmm. One of the things that's interesting around the NBL, who's done a remarkable job in the last ten years, right? You've you've really got to give it to them. Yep. I find it really interesting as to why the difference, not just that there is a difference. So ten years ago, the NBL was bankrupt. Yep. It actually shut down for a year. Like as a business, if we're talking about businesses, it was insolvent. Yes. And somebody decided, or some people, maybe maybe it's Larry in isolation, but it's other people around Larry as well who decided, decided that that was going to change, took the risk and invested the capital and have a flourishing business now for a whole range of different strategic reasons, right? Mm. That includes owners. It includes Larry as the league owner. It includes now broadcasters. It includes media it includes athletes who've decided to commit themselves. And so there's just more money in the system now, right? So, you know, an assistant coach, to take it down to a practical level, an assistant coach in the NBL for, you know, eight to ten months' work is earning, I don't know, I, I do know, but somewhere in the order of, let's say, eighty dollars to $100,000, right, for an assistant coaching role. Now, back in ten years ago, it was insolvent. Mm. So assistant coaches were doing it as they're doing it in the WNBL at the moment, on a semi-volunteer five to $10,000 amount of money. Now, so to change it, it isn't just that we want it to change. It's actually that people have to make conscious decisions who have these economic power to change it. Mm, great. And, you know, the analogy, the best analogy I can think of is in Australian sport is that in 1986, the AFL rights were worth roughly $1 million. It's well, Channel 7 paid them, and, and they're now worth, based on yesterday, $620 million a year. Now, the AFL as an industry is now an industry. It's not worth 620 times more. But somebody's allocated and decided to, to build a strategic business around the AFL. And I don't think it's just the WNBL. I think it's women's sport generally, there is some very, very, very early signs of that. But there's a lot of tokenism in the media around, even when they do give 10% coverage to women's sport, because that's the number, 10%, yep. that it's, it almost makes some people feel good enough that we've done our job with the 10%. But it's just scratching the surface in the change and the transformation that's needed. Let's bring that to the what we're talking about is the WNBL. How does that change, right? Because to Rachel Brewster did a beautiful interview this afternoon on Radio Melbourne. It's it's been around for forty two years, and it's not a whole lot different. You know, there were sellout grand finals in two thousand and eight in Canberra. Hmm. The money's a bit different, a little bit different, but not really for certainly not for athletes, and maybe a little bit for coaches. So, what's it going to take to change? And the answer is, it's going to have to be privatized. And Basketball Australia is going to have to give up control and ownership of it. And that's the only way it's going to change to the level that we want it to change. It can incrementally improve. You know, the broadcast deal this year was, you know, it's another step forward. So we go from ABC and KO and Fox and we go to ESPN and and Channel 9 or 9 now. That's a good move, right? And there's a, there's a little, little, little bit of money 
that's like a breadcrumb comparative to NRL and AF. So it's going to have to take some boldness and some courage, and that's not easy because the people who really need the boldness and the courage are the people who've got custodianship and have had it for at least the last 20 years. So go back to the NBL. The reason it changed and the opportunity emerged is because it was bankrupt. Now, the risk we have with the WNBL is that where we need to get to for a change to happen, and I hope not because we own a business in this. We don't want it to be insolvent. But the NBL had to be insolvent and broken before the people who had control of it would give up and create the opportunity for someone to come in. Remember, Larry was in the league. He was an owner. And he offered to take it over and they knocked him back first time. It wasn't until they had no money that they actually let it go. Yeah. That kind of relates to a point that I've made a few times on the podcast, which is we need investment. And it comes to an argument that I hear a lot. It's, well, you can't pay the athletes more because the league doesn't have the revenue. And I understand the equation, but I also understand that you've got to invest. There has to be a risk taken to be able to grow an enterprise. And, you know, look, sometimes I say to people, well, you know, if that argument was to stand, no startup would ever start up because a startup business by nature has no revenue. It has to have an investment made. You spend the money and you pay people, maybe not necessarily full market rate, you pay them as close to market rate as you can afford and offer shares or or some other incentive to be able to build the business to the point where it is making the revenue to be self-sustaining. This is where we need to get to. The league needs to get to that point. And it it needs that level of investment. And it also needs, I think, champions who fall outside the typical supporter of the league to be able to reach a wider audience. How we do that I'm not really sure, but I think there needs to be a a broadening of people talking about the league other than just those of us who recognise it for what it is, which is a great league with great athletes. To me, I think you're absolutely right. We need to get more money into the sport. Yeah, BA needs to let go of of the apron strings, but there's other layers that need to go around it, I think. Yeah, I I disagree on the issue of um, we need to go and find a new audience. The NBL doesn't have a new audience. It's it's just brought to life the heartland of basketball and brought with it families. and, And so I hear this talk within WNBL circles from people, particularly who from outside of basketball, and I'm not a basketball person in terms of all of my life. That's not... They say, oh, we've really got to reach out and find a new audience. And the answer is we have an audience. Right, we have the highest participation sport in the country, so we have to. We the first place to start is start there. So mm-hmm. at least build it credibly, so that to Carly's point, people who love basketball come and watch. And we know that works with the boomers. We we just know that works because um, if you put a good enough product on. But to your point, if you don't have the capital and you don't have the balance sheet, you can't take the risk. Mm. Right, so. I don't like the fact that Ezzy Magbegor, who is part of us, been here for four years, 
has gone to Hungary this year to play. I love what she's doing because I think it's an amazing career move for her and Carly's played overseas as well. But I don't like the fact that she's made that choice in part by the remuneration she's going to receive over there. Mm. She made it for other reasons as well. It isn't just me. I mean, it's an amazing opportunity to play for Sopra on the EuroLeague champions and a yep. great, you know, it's a bit of rite of passage and just an amazing opportunity. But I would love us to be sitting here in the league where we're putting an offer in front of her that just made her choice a lot harder. Yep. You know, it, it isn't that hard. I mean, the, the numbers are not so compelling that they're not achievable. But you've got to be prepared to seek out the change, give up control and take risk. Hmm. And having worked in national sporting organisations myself, that's not a place that national sporting organisations generally play well in because um, they generally don't have a balance sheet, which is the case in, um, in our sport, as was shown back when the NBL was run by the same organisation. And so it's absolutely no disrespect. I really mean this to any individual involved. That's not... It's a structural piece that needs to change, and um, that's going to take some courage. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with you. And I, th- I think I probably didn't express myself well when I was saying about getting people from outside. What I was meaning was there are people – okay, I'm going to use an example. Jacinta knows exactly which example I'm going to use because I use it regularly. There was an interview with Jesse Ventura when he was governor of Minnesota. Okay, so he's a guy who was, he's an ex-SEAL. He's an ex-professional wrestler. He's an ex-politician in the US. And he came out on an interview and said, I prefer watching women's basketball to watching men's basketball. And he's quoted all the reasons why. But he reaches at basketball fans, but because of where the message is coming from, it has a different impact on those people. We've got to try and find those people who can, provide a bit of cut through to be able to say, as you said, the people who are participating in the sport to get them to come to a game or watch a game, which obviously at the moment they're not. And that's one of the great unanswered questions of history as to why they don't show up. Well, I think in terms of answering that, that's our job. So I think complete accountability sits with the league and the clubs. It doesn't sit with players, with the athletes. It sits with us. So... Our job is to change that. And what I'm probably sharing with you, incremental change, um, you know, we really love, we love the last six years, an ownership group of the Boomers. We love what we've done. We think we've built a quality organisation. But if I was being brutal about it, even the change we've made is incremental. It's not transformational. And I think the league has an opportunity and women's basketball has an opportunity, as is happening in the WNBA, to be transformational. And that's a about a five-year journey to do, but it takes genuine investment, capital, risk-taking, failure sometimes, and um, we'd probably have Kelly Ernst back at the Boomers. That would be the way we'd probably make it work. So. <laughs> too soon, Tony, too soon. <laughs> I don't know, to chime in for what it's worth. I mean, you know, we talk about Larry Kesselman and the great stuff he's done. And um, I think for me, like, he knows how to run a business and he applied that to running a basketball league and it was entrepreneurship. And I guess I'm paraphrasing what you're saying in terms of, like, risk-taking, right, investment. But, you know, accountability, um, you know, going hard and going for it and treating it like a business is just something that 
you know, I think would, would make a huge difference. And, you know, I know on the, the topic of audience, like, you know, I've got two girls at home, you know, like the 12 and 15 and you know, they probably couldn't really care about basketball or WNBL up until this point, but to be honest, but through just me and seeing what I've been doing and, you know, like just coming along to a game, like they, they were hooked, you know, and they'll be Boomers fans for, for a while, I reckon. And, but it took me doing this, you know, to reel them in. I think the people are out there within the basketball area. I think there are people um, in the wider community which influencers, you know, can get to. I mean, I'm an influencer in my household, but, like, no one cares outside of that. But, you know, there are people who um, can help us give credibility, not that it needs it, but, you know, in some people's minds, you know, lend credibility and, and reach people and say, hey, this is, you know, pretty impressive. I'm behind this. And people go, okay, yeah, this is worth checking out. So, yeah, I think audience growth, you know, can happen within the basketball community, can happen outside of that. But there's definitely more that needs to be done. And, um, you know, from a documentary point of view, it, it's, you know, I'm just a guy with the camera. I'm doing what I can. Carly, you're just, you know, someone who's really good at basketball. You know, we do what we can and uh, leave it up to the the uh, people smarter than us to, um, you know, to make the big decisions. Okay, guys, I really want to thank you for coming on the show because I think this documentary is really important for the league and for the sport. I really commend you for having done this and delivered it. I can't wait to see the whole thing. And I couldn't say enough about what you guys have achieved over this season. And I'm really, really proud that we could have you on the show. Appreciate it, Paul. Can't wait for people to see it. And, um, yeah, let's hope that it has some tangible benefits. You know, there's so much great content out there. I, I just hope that it has some kind of legacy piece and some, you know, like some real impact for everything that we've talked about tonight. Awareness is great, but action is, is even better. So that's my hope for it. People often ask me, you know, well, what can I do to help, right? So there's two things you can do to help if you're listening to this podcast. Come to a game is one. Whichever WNBL team it is, if you're in Melbourne, certainly don't go to Southside, but come watch the Melbourne Boomers. But um, come to a game is one. Two is um, if you like the documentary and you like the Boomers, go to www.melbourneboomers.com.au and become a member. That that makes a tangible difference. Carly, okay. I want to know to end, in five, ten years' time, what do you hope is the lasting like impact of this documentary or what is the, the the lasting kind of impact of this group of boomers that you want people to take away? That's a great question. Um, I think it's the impact. I think just seeing how raw it is, the behind the scenes showing that, that we're real people are like as athletes and I think just showing that how hard we do work for what we do, our jobs, the importance of everything, you know, it's like the motherhood and everything that's in the documentary. I think I just want everyone just to look back on it, just be proud of us, how hard we're working. I'm just excited for everyone to see the documentary because then you'll get like what we're talking about and you'll just understand it more. And I just think I just want it to be something that's around forever and people are just going to talk about and just be proud of us all. So, yeah. That's great. Carly, thank you so much for leaving us with that message. Thank you all. And, guys, fantastic work. Really good luck with the release of the documentary and good luck to the Boomers for this season.
you know, we, we were well prepared not to play that game, that first game, if they didn't change something. So um, I think, you know, from a leadership point of view, from a playing group point of view, um, we still kneel to this day because that hurt, they still feel that. So it's not something that's going to go away. So whether we win this championship or not, that'll be what I'm most proud of. Welcome to a very special edition to our latest episode of Shooting the Breeze. Joining me is Sally Phillips, prior player for the WNBL, ex-Oregon Duck, Opal, and also has held positions with the WNBL and Indigenous Basketball Australia. Sally, it's great to have you here. And today we're talking about the first episode of Sidelined. Hi, Paul. It's great to be with you. So first question, what did you think about it? Because I really enjoyed watching it. Yeah, I I absolutely loved it, except um, frustrated we only got to see episode one because I was like dying to see more after that first episode. It drags you in very, very quickly. So, yeah, it was a little bit like, no, I want to see more. But obviously, um, yeah, that um, will encourage me to tune in for the remaining episodes that we're going to see. But I felt really emotional after watching that first episode, brought up a lot of memories of what it was like to be a WNBL athlete back when I was playing through the 90s. And then I reflected further on that and thinking, gee whiz, it's 2022. You know, that was a long time ago. I retired in 2000. So we're kind of 22 years later and these amazing athletes are still having some of the same struggles that we were having back in the day. So found that a little bit confronting. To be honest, I found that I found that there were parts of that that were really confronting. I also think that as a show, it captured a lot of that early season drama around the boomers uh, really, really well. And I think it does one other thing that, that I found really interesting, and that is it gives people who are fans of of the sport, fans of the team, the ability to be able to look a little bit behind the curtain and see what goes on at a WNBL team. Yeah, I would agree. I loved that part of the show, Paul, because I think there'd be a lot of people that probably don't realise the effort that goes into being a WNBL athlete. Uh, so I loved I loved that we were able to see, you know, up close and personal vision and footage on how hard these athletes actually train and the sacrifices that they make to get themselves on the court. I think people will find being able to see that in a little bit more detail, people will find that fascinating because there's perhaps maybe a little bit of lack of knowledge or respect for the professional levels that these women actually have to commit to to um, to hit the floor each week. Yeah, and the other thing I, th- I found really amazing, apart from showing how much effort they are putting in, is how tight the relationship is between yeah, the players. I, uh, yeah, but, I, I definitely picked up on that theme really early in the episodes as well and, you know, it made me reflect on my time in sport and how how important that camaraderie is and you kind of did get the feeling that something really special could happen with this group because of the love and respect that they have for each other as a team. You know, team sport can be really difficult sometimes. You're not necessarily going to like everybody that is on your team but 
I didn't get that feel from this group of athletes at all. There was a lot of love and respect there. Um, and obviously, and we'll, we'll touch on this, the, the, the big part of episode one is the experience that Tiffany and Ezzy went through with regard to uh, their hair. So for a group to galvanise around two teammates in the way that the boomers did, that I think that's when my emotions started to really hit because I was like, this, this is a winning team. You know, when you see people come together the way they did, something special was going to happen. Yeah, I think Adam really captured that well when he was shooting the raw footage and also putting together this first episode. For me, it told a great story. It told it well in a really engaging way. It makes me want to watch the next three episodes. I actually cannot wait to see them. And the way, and I'd really like to get your feedback on how you felt the way the story was handled in relation to the issue that did come up that everybody's aware of with the hair. Yeah, look, I, I still clearly remember when it first happened and luckily for me I was working at Indigenous Basketball Australia at the time so I had the ability to check in with people on my team. Jax Compton, who was our culture manager, who's an outstanding Indigenous woman, I was able to check in with her immediately because what happened for me when it first happened, I remembered thinking, oh, wow, this seems to have blown up into something huge. And, you know, I reflected on my two daughters who had, while they were playing netball, you know, just at a junior level, had had plaits in their hair and had been asked by umpires to remove their plaits. So for me, I was kind of like, oh, that's a bit of a normal thing in sport. And then I very, very quickly shifted to, but hang on, Ezzy and Tiffany are really upset by what's happened, so I need to make an effort to find out a little bit more. So connecting in with Jax, she was able to explain to me why being asked to change their hairstyle would have such a dramatic effect on them. And then I went and did my own research as well. And, you know, when you you only need to go into Google and do a bit of research on hair for black women or for Indigenous women and you very, very quickly discovered why they were as upset as they were, you know. And I'm reflecting on my notes that I wrote at the time because I wanted to learn more about, you know, the, the sacred cultural and spiritual symbols for women and their hair. And then you go back and you look at, you know, the slave traders back in the day were shaving the heads of African people erasing their identities and you know in 1786 there was a law passed in Louisiana that required black women to put a scarf or a wrap around their hair which um, signified that they were in slavery so there's there's a massive amount of history that people were probably not aware of and that probably they needed to be aware of so it it really hit me you know I was I was I felt ashamed that Tiff had travelled the world playing basketball and she lands on Australian shores and she feels like she wants to pack her bags and leave and that made me feel feel really sad. So I think what it made me do, and if, if anyone can learn something from Tiffany and Ezzy and what they went through is when something happens in this country that you're not quite sure why an Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander person or an African person would be upset. 
educate yourself as to why they're feeling that way. That's the big takeaway for me. And I think from a sporting perspective, you know, I'd, knowing the people at Basketball Australia, I don't believe that there would racism was coming into it, but it was it was ignorance. And I think we all need to do a much better job in sport of sense checking things when they happen. You know, I think all organisations need to have a culture and diversity manager so that anything, no matter how big or small, when issues like this come up, when a rule comes up, when a policy, when you're planning an event, you need to be able to check in to make sure that everything that you are doing is culturally safe and culturally appropriate so that things like this don't happen again. You can probably hear in my voice that was a really difficult time for me because, again, here we are, Australia, treating someone that would be in a minority poorly. So I think people are going to find that episode confronting, but I hope people walk away and go and do some reading and just just educate yourselves a little bit on why that meant so much to Tiffany and Ezzy. I think the documentary really captures that well, gets the story across really well also in a way that makes it really accessible for people who may not have done the background research that you, you've had the opportunity yeah, absolutely. to do on And look, obviously, I think what comes out of that as well is just how quickly that team got around those two players and loved them and supported them, you know, and their coach, Guy Malloy, how he stepped up to the plate. And, you know, they carry that through the season. So... Yeah, the the emotions, I don't want to give too much away about the first episode because I obviously want everyone to to get on board and watch it, but you'll see how you'll see how the emotions were running pretty hot because this this is all blowing up, you know, a few days before they play their first game. So, things like that can have an effect on on a team. Think the emotional roller coaster that they all jumped on for those first few days definitely had an effect, but gee, they they pick themselves up and and head through the season in an incredible manner. But I just, yeah, I think out of that first episode for me, I, I, the big message I would love is for Australians to get out and just do some homework and do educate yourselves a little bit because things like this continue to happen in sport. You know, we reflect on what's just happened in the AFLW and Indigenous round and the poor way that that's all been managed as well. So I think it's a real wake-up call that come on Australia, we've, we've got to be better when it comes to understanding the culture of other people. Absolutely. One of the things I will say is that for me, I believe that the, the, this first episode of the documentary is not only has it captured it well, it's presented it in a way that we can all watch it, we can understand it, we can get a real great picture of what was going on for the team at the time I think anybody who's a fan of basketball, and it doesn't matter men's or women's basketball, will enjoy watching this show. It's something that's going to engage everybody. And to be honest, I think everybody who's a fan of the game, and particularly the WNBL, should get behind it and support it as much as possible. I can't wait to see the whole thing. And actually, I'm looking forward to watching the first episode again. Yeah, absolutely. I think... um... I'm really excited and and I think it's going to capture the imagination of everybody and if out of this great documentary and, you know, Adam being the master at telling this incredible story, if the outcome can be that the WNBL starts to get a little bit more attention and respect, people start to buy tickets and go and watch, 
that's the outcome that I hope we get from this documentary going to air is we, we desperately need people to buy tickets and support this league because it's, you know, rewind the clock a little bit when I was head of WNBL, I would bang on about this all the time, that this is a world-class league. We have, you know, our Opals have been awesome since 1996. We've been winning medals, but for some reason we just don't seem to have captured the imagination of the Australian sporting public. So um, if anything comes out of this, I hope that, yeah, people get a deeper respect for the incredible athletes that take the floor every week in the WNBL and, you know, the sacrifices that they make to make that happen. I 100% agree with you, Sally. Sally, it's been great having you on for this this short review of the first episode. Thanks for your time and really looking forward to speaking to you soon about another topic which will be coming up in a podcast very shortly. Shooting the Breeze can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify and iHeartRadio. Don't forget to subscribe and share the podcast with all your friends.